Welcome and thank you for joining us here for the Bread of Life, a listener-supported program of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. I want you to think for a moment. Are you a first-generation Christian? By this I mean your parents were not professing or born-again Christians. You were the first to decide to follow him. Or maybe you're a second-generation Christian. Your parents were the first from their generations to follow the Lord Jesus. I am a second-generation Christian. Or maybe you are a third- or fourth-generation Christian. You have a long and faithful heritage that goes back multiple generations into the Christian faith. My children are third-generation Christians. Keep that in mind now as we consider the reality of generational drift from the foundations of our faith. There's an observable drift if you look at the history of the church. Actually, if you look at the history of the Christian faith from one generation to the next, you can see it reaffirmed in Scripture over and over again to study the history of Israel. An observable drift through the succeeding generations away from the dramatic, transformative work that God does in the lives who are first in their generations to trust in Him for salvation. To those who first come to God in the midst of their generations, salvation has this telling effect. It separates them out from their society. They're the first within their family, and so they're separated out from their family. It happened to my father. When he became a believer, his family first tried to get him to kind of calm down. I I have a wonderful letter that my grandfather wrote him to try to explain to him that not everybody needed to live for God or be how boring life would be if everybody tried to be a good Christian like he was trying to be, and eventually they just couldn't handle him, so they asked him to leave because it was so strange to them. They couldn't understand the change that, that... taking place and when you don't understand the change that's taking place you're afraid of it and they were afraid what was happening in my father's life and asked him to leave and I see it happen all over the world when you reach people that are coming out of their culture their community and they're the first to strike hold of Jesus in a radical transformative way it it separates you out from your society you become a stranger and an alien in the age in which you live and among your societal peers there's a distinctness about that first generation This distinction is because their salvation has uprooted them from the pattern of generational sin and neglect that oftentimes takes place in their own families, or just from the patterns of presumption that we're basically good people, but basically the rules and standards are life, or that you just learn how to pursue success and get along with what you got and succeed as much as you can and give a little to others around you because that's what's expected of you and... All of a sudden, this person meets God and they're transformed and they realize they're set on a mission to serve and obey this one who's rescued them and saved them and their their lives become typified by serious and significant sacrifices in the service of God and to His glory and their lives become typified by significant gains in the experience of their awareness of fellowship with God and it separates them out from those around them and those whom they live and from their families and from their friends. But there's a distinction about them in that first generation, but the succeeding generations that follow after drift away from that distinctiveness. They're not raised in a family that's surprised, by the way, when they come to faith. They come to faith and they start making commitments to the Lord and the family saying, of course, that's what we do. And it's not uncommon. It's not distinct. And they tend to gather around a society that all seems to affirm and believe the same things. And 
Then over time, because they don't even have a sense of the distinctiveness of their faith, actually don't seek to maintain a distinctiveness in their faith. And so the following generations often find less and less space between them and themselves and the world in which they live. They're less and less distinct from the age in which they're born. This drift continues until ultimately a faithless generation rises up from them. And the sad thing is this faithless generation continues to think and strongly hold to the idea that they're Christian. But it's a generation in which they're almost in every category not unlike the unbelieving around them. They have the same priorities. They have the same products from their lives. They have the same propensities. They tend to pursue success and acceptance and comfort and self-fulfillment above everything else. They're pursuing the same acceptance in society and they want to be liked and appreciated like everybody else and they want to just fit in and actually it's part of their message. We're not like any, we're no different from you. We're all just the same. There are a number of reasons for this incremental lessening in the standards of holiness and obedience and distinctiveness from one preceding generation of God's people to the next. And one of them can simply be this. Oftentimes, when God reaches a person in the midst of a society and, and within a family and a culture that's not living and following God, the impact of the gospel and the redemption that God brings in their life is it puts a new motive in their life and it puts a new order in their life and they become disciplined and they start working and laboring for the glory of God. And by the way, when you work and labor for the glory of God instead of the honor of men, you actually excel those who are just working for the honor of men. So you work harder and you become more disciplined and that results in prosperity and success that you pass on to your children. Your children live in that prosperity, but that prosperity is to some extent corrupting. And Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle, and it's just interesting. It's actually, it's actually proved, in a sense, sociologically, studying the effect of the generational development of the faith, of Christian faith and the life from generation to generation, that the first generation usually comes to Christ largely it's a subset of people that are from an impoverished community or a poor community. And then the next generation becomes more successful and more successful and more successful. And it's, it's more telling, by the way, when the gospel comes into areas where it's making its first inroads. So you can go to Latin America or you can go to the Southeast Asian countries and you'll see where the gospel comes to the poorest of the poor. And yet within a very short period of time, that generation actually ends up being some of the most prosperous and the most successful in their countries. And... Prosperity kind of eats away at our distinctiveness. Ends up being something that we pursue. That's part of the experience. Another reason is because each generation begins to, in a sense, develop a new standard of what they're going to tolerate or what they're going to put up with or what are going to be the exceptions to the rules in their life. But what happens is the first generation has these rules and standards of distinctiveness in which they want to live for God and follow Him and obey Him, but they make a few exceptions here and there. And the second generation makes a rule of their exceptions. And then they make a few exceptions. And the third generation makes a rule of their exceptions. And little by little, you just lose all of your distinctiveness. You're just doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. My father used to say that one generation's tolerance becomes the next generation's standard. That's the idea. So if you go to the book of Joshua and Judges, you'll see the exemplification of this reality of this generational drift that takes place. The book of Joshua begins with the former slaves of the Jews who have come out of Egypt and have met with God in the wilderness and have been consolidated because of actually their rebellion against God and because they hadn't really yielded to God into a generation of, of warriors 
that crossed the Jordan River ready to go into the promised land of Canaan and seize it for God. They crossed by faith the Jordan River. They step into the waters of the flood tide of the Jordan. The waters part. They come across miraculously. They gather large stones in the middle of the Jordan River. And when they get to the other side of the river in the Canaan land that they're going to fight in to take conquest and conquer it as their own land to live in, they pile up those stones as a memorial to what God has done and what God has put them there to do. And there, they covenant to God that they're going to be yielded completely to Him for His service, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to conquer that land and live in that land with God being their God. And as an expression of this covenanting before God, or this recovenanting before God, all of the men are circumcised. And it happens in a place called Gilgal. Gilgal is said to means where the reproach is rolled away. The reproach of being slaves, the reproach of being wanderers in the wilderness has all rolled away now and taken away from them. And they're an army of God's people in the land of conquest to conquer. And from there, they go out by faith to conquer. Even though in all of this, they don't have very much. They don't have hardly any weaponry. They got sticks that they've whittled with points. They don't have very much at all. They don't have anything to go against these massive cities that the Canaanites have built. The first one they go against is Jericho. And all they can do is march around it for one time a day for seven days and seven times on the seventh day. And it's because God told them to. And then to shout and to blow their horns and yell in triumph after the seventh time around on the seventh day. And the, the walls come crashing down. And God gives them this great victory. And from there, God leads them in victory through the land. That's that first generation, you might say. In the book of Joshua. Now you go to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges starts in a different way. Instead of starting out and directing us into this picture of how this first generation goes in triumph in the promised land, the first chapter of Judges basically recounts another generation that begins to rise up. And what you realize is this second generation of Israelites don't completely finish the battle that God gave to their fathers. We don't have time to read it, but if you read through chapter 1, you'd see that there's a testimony of an incomplete obedience that takes place here. And then there's a compromise that they make with the enemies around them. They don't annihilate them, and they don't drive them out. In fact, instead, they cohabitate with them, and they begin to live with them and share their lives with them. And finally, you'll see at the end of the report that they're fully cowed by the influence of the people around them, so that some of the tribes are actually driven back by those that they're supposed to be driving out of the land, and they're driven back into the mountains because they, they are not able to live down in the lower places where the Canaanites still have entrenched themselves. And so the point is that there are compromises that take place in the order that God gave that first generation, and the second generation fails to press forward to total victory and total triumph. Now the impact of this, this failure to answer the full call upon them, begins to frustratingly express itself through all the generations that take place after this in the book of Judges. In chapter 2 of the book of Judges, you have really the beginning of the story of what's happening here. Another generation that is rising up that is not that first generation that's conquering and obeying and fulfilling God's command and is going forward with a distinctiveness, but has come from a generation that was incomplete in their obedience, compromising in their relationships, cohabitating with those around them, and ultimately being cowed by those around them. And here's what we read. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the words of Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, 
I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was that the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, and the people lifted up their voices and wept. Gilgal was the place where the reproach had been rolled away for the first generation. Bochum, where the people now are residing, actually means the place of weeping. God sends his messenger up from the place of where the reproach is rolled away and where victory begins to take place, and he finds the people instead settling down in a place called weeping and pronounces that you've not fulfilled the commandment that I've placed in you, you've been unfaithful in your generation, and I'm going to judge you. The first generation conquers the world, the second generation compromises with the world and cohabitates with it and is cowed by the world, and the next generation is controlled and dominated by it. Dear friend, don't push away the probing of the Holy Spirit. It's the convicting work of the Spirit that brings a person to confession, repentance, and saving faith, and that same Spirit remains to make us more like Jesus, our Holy Savior. If we can be of help to you, reach out to us at breadoflifeboise.org. There you'll also find a link to the radio archives of our broadcast and also links of full-length sermons delivered at the Bread of Life Fellowship Church. There, too, you can learn about the work of Church Partnership Evangelism and equipping evangelists around the world, and you can see how you can support that work through your tax-deductible donations. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.